Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to Zephaniah chapter 3. We'll look at verses 14 through 20 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin. In, uh, so we're, we're looking at Zephaniah 3. But in Luke chapter 2, uh, the beginning of Luke 2 is, a commonly, uh, is commonly read around Christmas time. Uh, you've got the angel finding the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem saying to those shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel wasn't telling the shepherds that there were gifts waiting to be opened back home under the tree. That's not the, the main point of Christmas. The angel was proclaiming the birth of the one who is himself the very gift of God to all people, Jesus Christ. That's what the angel is talking about when he says, good news of great joy. Jesus, has Christ, Jesus Christ has come into the world. There's good news of great joy. Because of Jesus, you have every reason and every right to rejoice at any time. Because of Jesus, you have every reason and every right to be happy and celebrate and to, to look to bring uh, delight to others. Even though you might be facing some, of the, some uh, very tough times right now. When the Bible talks about joy, which is what we're uh, celebrating and, and thinking about today with this, the particular candle that we've lit, the pink candle of joy, when the Bible talks about joy, it often talks about our having joy during even the most difficult times. Because Christian joy is pretty different from the world's version. The world's version is it's pretty common to be happy when things are going well, when circumstances are good, when we're getting what we want in life. And with that vision of joy, with the world's vision or version of joy, you'll, you'll lose your joy when things take a turn for the worse. Right? Um, but Christian joy is based on an eternal reality, an, an unshakable reality, uh, on something that's always true. Whatever is going on in my life, where, wherever I seem to be in, uh, in the roller coaster, the ups and downs, or even the middle of... Um, uh, good times are bad, right? So Christian joy is something that we can have because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus shows us what God is like. Christian joy is based on this one fact, that our God actually is joyful. Christian joy is based on the fact that cannot be changed, that our God is joyful, that our God delights, that our God is deeply happy, that our God even celebrates and rejoices over people like us. In Jesus Christ, we know that our God is a joyful Savior, and because of this, we can have a true, deep, abiding, and complete joy. And that's what we're going to talk about from Zephaniah, from his prophecy this morning. So let me pray first, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, there are a lot of ways that, um, that it's difficult for us to have joy, to rejoice, to hear your command to rejoice, as was read earlier in the New Testament reading, to rejoice always. These things are difficult for us for so many reasons. We pray that uh, the spiritual reasons for our joy would be evident to us this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and to be changed by it into the very likeness of Jesus Christ, our joyful Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. 
He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the other night, Sam and I watched um, Winter Light. It's a movie by Ingmar Bergman. Hopefully I didn't botch that name too much. It's a 1962 Swedish black and white film. Film, not movie. <laughs> I think that's the appropriate term. It was not a happy movie. It was not a happy movie. I don't know if you've watched any of Bergman's movies. Swedish black and white films, usually not happy. It was bleak, all right? It was so bleak, in fact, that apparently Bergman decided that he was no longer a Christian when he made that movie. Um, it portrays a very severe pastor, a very stern, sickly pastor, unhealthy in a lot of ways, uh, going through the motions of leading people through worship, going through the motions of ministry, but really unable to, to offer any help to the despairing people who are around him because he cannot believe in God and he feels that God has forsaken him. Something we see a lot in, those, in, in our culture, I can't believe in God and God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, those, th those two things come together in this man's life. He's clearly supposed to be in a position where he's able to help and counsel and comfort people who are in despair. He's supposed to be able to bring gospel joy to people, but he just makes things worse through his own miserable unbelief. He's a miserable man, and that seems to be contagious with him. Uh, the indictment is uh, the most tragic part of this um, is that this seems to be a familiar portrayal of Christians in films. The, the popular culture understands us to be this way. A lot of times the indictment is that we're just joyless people. We're, we're lifeless. We're soul-sucking pretenders going through the motions, right? Um, when, uh, when we were watching this movie, I mentioned to Sam, I want to move to Sweden just to be a happy Christian there. <laughs> Uh, in a place that is so defined by a post-Christian despair, this existential despair, right? Um, Alexander Schmemann says that from its very beginning, Christianity has been the proclamation of joy. Of all accusations against Christians, the most terrible one was uttered by Nietzsche when he said that Christians had no joy. It's probably not one of the first things that uh, your non-believing friends think of believers, think of Christians, think of the church, joy. Right? It's probably not one of the first things that pops into people's mind when they think about Christians. But a Christian's joy or a Christian's lack of joy is, um, in a very important way, it's a testimony about God. 
Christian's joy or lack of joy is a testimony about God, when a Christian has no joy, it says that he or she believes somewhere deep inside, maybe it's not something they've explicitly, consciously said out loud that I believe this, but when a Christian has no joy, it says that he or she believes that God is against us or that God has abandoned us. Um, Christian's joylessness runs straight against the gospel. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy is commanded by God. It's, a, it's actually, we should think of it as a Christian moral virtue. Joy is a Christian moral virtue, and chronic joylessness isn't just unfortunate. It's not just too bad for that person that, uh, that they're joyless. Chronic joylessness is outlawed in, in his kingdom. That may be strong language, but it's because it's not in line with our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Christian joylessness goes against the gospel. So depression can have um, physiological causes, lots of reasons why people would be depressed, um, but spiritual depression, spiritual depression has a remedy. It has a remedy. Here's the setting for our passage. Zephaniah wrote, um, I think this was somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 years before Jesus came into the world. He wrote to Jerusalem, to Judah, remember the southern kingdom that was remaining after the, the, it split from the northern kingdom, Israel. Israel retained that name uh, in the north, and they were taken over by the Assyrians, right? So it's after the Assyrians have taken over Israel, before the Babylonians would come in and take over the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is, and humanly speaking, there's little room for optimism here because this, this prophet, along with all the other prophets, are, um, are proclaiming a message of judgment in, in large part. Uh, within a generation, the people would be crushed. The people of the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem, they'd be crushed, they'd be carried into captivity because in spite of attempts at reform, in spite of certain kings over Judah in Jerusalem trying to get the people to reform, it continued to be a nation where, you know, there'd be one king and then there'd be two bad kings, and then one, one good king and then uh, a couple more bad kings. And the people, were they were a nation of self-centered rebels. They didn't listen to God. They didn't care about God. They didn't care about what he said or living uh, like they... Um, they were called to live according to his law. And so prophet after prophet came seeking their repentance and their return to God, but they wouldn't listen and they continued in their sins. Right, so, so the day of judgment was coming. That's what these prophets say. That's what the whole, most of the book of Zephaniah is about this, the day of the Lord, the, the day of judgment that's coming. The Babylonians were coming and they were going to wipe out the southern kingdom the Babylonians were very bad people, and they did very bad things. And so there's, it's kind of bleak, right? Uh, there's not much reason for joy, humanly speaking, in terms of what's visible, what's right out there in front of us, right? But even though things were about to get very bleak, God called his people to rejoice because he's going to fix things. He's going to fix things. Verse 14, he's calling them right now, even though they still have to look forward to the day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment, the Babylonians coming in to wipe them out. He says, sing aloud. 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So this instruction comes long before their experience of deliverance would come. Their circumstances were about to get as dire as could be imagined when one could easily interpret a difficult life of captivity um, to mean that, that God is against us or that God has abandoned us. Nevertheless, they're invited, and in fact, they're commanded to put their hearts into singing and cheering. Why? Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. It's basically saying God is not against you. God has not abandoned you. You need to take his word for it. You need to believe in his revelation, but it's true. So rejoice because God has forgiven you. He's delivered you. He dwells with you. Rejoice because of your salvation. This is a picture of salvation in uh, ancient Israel. So to to the people of ancient Jerusalem, this salvation, this forgiveness and this deliverance and this restoration, this is, this is a future vision. Yet it was spoken of in the past and present tenses as if it had already happened. In order to communicate how absolutely true this promise is, it is as good as done. It's as good as done. To them, it was future. To us, it is past, actually. It is done. It's not just as good as done. It is done. God has taken away his judgments against us against sinful people who rebel against him. God has taken away his judgments against us, and he is not against us. He is for us, and he's with us. He's not abandoned us. He's with us. He's in our midst. That's what this says. And this has happened in Jesus Christ. God has taken away our judgments, and he has come to be in our midst, the King, our Lord, in our midst, in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He's the Word of God incarnate. He's the Word of God, the revelation of God in the flesh. And he allows us to perceive and to interpret the deepest, truest realities that God forgives us and he draws near to us, even though our circumstances around us would seem to testify otherwise. Jesus' very name is Emmanuel. His very name is God with us. He has come into the world for our salvation, to restore our relationship to God, and this is meant to trigger a response in us. That news is good news of great joy. The response that we're supposed to have to who Jesus is and what he's done is is one of joy. So, verse uh, 16, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So um, I remember the first time I read this, these verses, I was surprised that they were in the Bible. Here we have God speaking of himself as uh, as if in the third person. This, uh, This quotation continues on and he begins speaking of himself in the first person using I, that pronoun, but speaking of himself here, he, uh, as if in the third person, like, like a father would say to a frightened child, it's okay, daddy's here now. Um, 
And the way God portrays himself here is one of the most profound revelations in all of Holy Scripture. He is absolutely thrilled to be here for you. He's absolutely thrilled to be here with you. Jesus uh, says in Luke's gospel, in chapter 15, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When one sinner turns around and starts walking toward God instead of away from him to have a relationship, when one sinner re-enters relationship with God, there is joy before the angels of God. That doesn't mean the angels are rejoicing. That means that the one who is before them has joy. And, and God is the one who is in front of the angels. Right? God is the one who is rejoicing when one sinner returns for a relationship. Does that surprise you? Like I said, it surprised me the first time I read this. It surprised me. He is a joyful God. This is who he is, actually. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in himself, Father and Son mutually delighting in one another in the person of the Holy Spirit. Joy is definitive of God's very existence, of his very being. He's persons in joy, in joyful relationship. Joy is a thing because God is who he is. Joy wouldn't be a thing if God weren't who he is. And God's joyful saving presence is what brings us joy. His presence with us brings us joy because his joy really is contagious. Jesus Christ was glad to rescue us. He was not, not just reluctant. He was glad to rescue us. That's what the Bible says when it says in Hebrews that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He saved us at great cost to himself. It was painful. It was torturous. He died on the cross. It was humiliating and shameful. It was, it was terrible in every way. And the reason he did it was for the joy that was set before him. The joy of seeing sinners repent and return to, to God for relationship. So <clears throat> there's this um, thing called the gospel-centered life that I think a lot of us have gone through together, kind of a, a little workbook that's great for uh, Christian discipleship, kind of getting the basics of what it means to be a Christian. And in that book uh, booklet, they say, Pause and answer this question. As God thinks of you right now, what is the look on his face? Do you picture God as disappointed, angry, indifferent? Does his face say, get your act together? Or, if only you could do a little more for me. If you imagined God as anything but overjoyed with you, you have a wrong conception of God. If you imagine answering that question, as God thinks of you right now, what's the look on his face? If, you, if it's not, it's a look of deep joy. He could barely contain himself from dancing. <laughs> then it's a wrong conception of who God is. We have a joyful Savior. Let me ask it another way. Do you have a good relationship with God? The gospel says, yes, you do, because of Jesus Christ. I bet when I asked that question, do you have a good relationship with God, you, you turned here and started to think about, well, what's wrong with me and what's good about me and what's going on inside of me and how do I feel, right? You have a good relationship with God because God loves you, he delights over you, and he has saved you through his son, Jesus Christ. Your relationship, it's, it's declared, it's good. You have a good relationship with God because of, 
Christ. God is overjoyed with you, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but because he is who he is, and he has done what he has done. The one who understands this God, this God of grace, uh, will know what true joy is. True joy is the free gift of being with a God who chooses to be with you in Jesus Christ. He chose to be with you. He chose not to be without you. Children, if you receive a really great gift that you really like, do you have to be told to be happy? Do you have to be told? Usually not. Do you have to be told to rejoice, to sing and cheer and dance? Usually not. It's pretty obvious that it's time to celebrate when someone gives you something amazing. God has given himself to you with great delight. He's given himself to you, even though it meant the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, he's given himself to you. Because of Jesus, because of this gift, you always have every reason and every right to rejoice. Karl Barth said, um, such light and joy and laughter are ours when we look up to him, to Jesus Christ, He is the one who makes us radiant. He's the one who makes us radiant. Uh, It says in verse 18 of our text, as God continues, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. There's going to be a time when there would be no festivals. These, These religious festivals, these feasts where people were flooding and streaming into Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple was, to bring their offerings and uh, to rejoice and to have festivals and feasts, right? On a, on a regular basis, they, were, they wouldn't be able to do that anymore because they wouldn't be in the land anymore. They'd all be carried off into captivity in Babylon. Those who remained in Jerusalem wouldn't be allowed to celebrate. Um, so there would be mourning for the festival, mourning for the good times when we get together and rejoice in God. Being a Christian doesn't mean rejoicing alone. It doesn't mean rejoicing just individually. It means rejoicing together, as at festivals and feasts and parties. Being a Christian means rejoicing together with others in the church, especially at the weekly festival of the Lord's Day. This is the regular festival that God has called us to continue observing is coming on a weekly basis on the Lord's Day, the day where Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It's a day of triumph and joy, and we're called to to come together at this weekly festival, especially at his table, especially at his table for the feast. So children, this is all a gift to you. Which is better, children, gifts or other people? Gifts or other people? Somebody say it. <laughs> gifts, <laughs> other people. Okay, so there may be some confusion about this other people, right? Which is better, gifts or other people? I always tell my kids, people are the most important part of life. Yesterday, when we went to Safari Sam's to hang out with the other dads and kids, I was like, what's the most important part about going to Safari Sam's with your friends? It's your friends. That's the most important part of it. Or what's the most important part about going to school? It's the other people who are there. 
Um, it's a bit of a trick question when it comes to this, though, because with God, other people are the gifts. You don't have to choose between, right, whether gifts are better or people are better. The people are the gifts. Being together with each other in the church, that is a gift of God that we can enjoy. God gathers us, it says in the text. He gathers us and he gives us to each other in a way that we can celebrate. We have festivals and feasts together. Just being here right now as we share God's presence together, that is a gift. He takes people who are longing for community. He takes lonely people who are struggling with depression. He takes people who are longing for festival joy, and he brings them into his happy home. That's what the church is. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. It's a happy home. He says in verse 19, I will save the lame and gather the outcast. So God is happy to save every kind of person that there is. Again, this is best seen in Jesus Christ. God forgives sinners. God with us heals the broken. God with us shows hospitality to strangers at his table. He says, take and eat. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. It's a picture of restoration. Your fortunes, your renown, your praise in the sight of the earth, all these things amount to the same thing, that, that God himself, he's your treasure, he's your fortunes, he's your praise, he's your renown, he's the reason why you should be known in the earth as the church. God himself is overjoyed to dwell in your midst in Jesus Christ. God himself is deeply pleased to actually be known as your God. Even you, even me, broken, messed up people who don't deserve that, that privilege, He is pleased, he is delighted to be known as our God in Jesus Christ. The special thing about the church, the thing that makes the church truly beautiful is that God delights to be her God. God delights to be our God, and that's what sets us apart. That's what makes us beautiful. His delight in us brings us joy also that that colors every part of the Christian life, every part of your life should be tinted by joy, right? A little bit of pink. The little girls understand that. (laughs) Every part of life should be pink and joyful. True faith, true faith is not antagonistic toward outsiders. Christian faith is a happy resting in God's love that invites others to join in our happiness. Uh, True repentance Another aspect of the Christian life, true repentance is not driven by fear of punishment. You better stop doing that or else true repentance is not driven by fear of punishment. Christian repentance is propelled by the joy of freedom in Christ. True wisdom, another part of the Christian life, doesn't doesn't despair or grow cynical. It's not like the more insight you have into the world the more depressed and cynical you would be about it. That's not true wisdom. Christian wisdom makes merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
That's real Christian wisdom. It makes Mary in light of the true nature of God and his blessings. What it means that he's given himself to us, that he's given all things to us for our enjoyment, to be received with thanksgiving. That's real wisdom. The only thing that will bring you that that kind of everlasting joy, that kind of real joy that will saturate every part of your life is, is knowing that God is a joyful God and that he is with you, that he forgives you, that he's rejoicing over even you. It's the only thing that will give you life-transforming joy. And you have that. You have that knowledge in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. God delights over you with, with loud singing. So we light candles at Advent because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He came into the world at Christmas time. He's coming again soon as the dawn of the new heavens and the new earth. And as candles give their light and warmth for the clear comfort of others, may we, God's people, shine and share the comfort and joy of the Lord as well. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we um, imagine that there are a lot of things that have to happen in us, that we have to order our lives properly, that we have to do better in order to attain to real joy. Would you steer our hearts and minds closer to the truth, that is, that Jesus Christ has already done everything necessary for us to attain true joy, that he's given it to us as a free gift it's one of the many blessings of being called your children freely by your grace that we get to rejoice with you. You are already rejoicing and you have been throughout eternity and you've called us to enter into your joy. We pray that the joy of the Lord would be our strength, the joy of our salvation would light up our lives and that uh, through us people would see what it means to be those who are beloved and delighted in by you that our friends and neighbors and family members who don't yet know you would see that to know you means a relationship of joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.